Welcome to CIO Perspectives. I'm Sid All, the CIO of Private Client Endowments and Foundations here at Brown Advisory. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Erica Padgel, the CIO of Sustainable Investing. And for our last episode of the year, we are delighted to be joined by Eric Gordon. He's the head of equities here at Brown Advisory. He has an excellent vantage point into the bottom-up dynamics taking place at specific companies, and we look forward to him giving us a deep dive into the earnings picture, which despite many pessimistic predictions, seems to be holding up well so far. Third quarter earnings came in better than feared. In the US, 10% revenue growth surprised to the upside and offset the margin pressures coming from rising costs and wages, and the result was earnings were up 2%. A brighter earnings picture, along with somewhat encouraging inflation data, has led to a bit of a rally in both stocks and bonds. And recent comments from Fed Chief Jerome Powell suggested future rate increases will be smaller, and markets quickly moved to price in some form of a Fed pivot. The meaning of the word pivot seems to have shifted, much as the word transitory did when talking about inflation. At first, pivot was when the Fed might start cutting rates. Then it was when they might pause, and now we seem to be getting excited about smaller rate hikes. The questions we are asking are if Q3 will represent peak earnings for this cycle, and if inflation is on a sustainable trajectory downwards towards the Fed's target of 2%, which would allow financial conditions to loosen. We suspect that the earnings outlook will become more challenged from here, and inflation may remain somewhat stubborn, even if it has peaked, and we're positioned accordingly. We will also dissect the outlook for China which has seen its markets whipsawed this year by a highly anticipated political transition, controversial COVID policies, and economic headwinds. It is the worst performing major stock market this year, down over 30%, and valuations there are near all-time lows. Recent protests in the country have recalled the Tiananmen Square protests of over 30 years ago, and investors are yet again asking if China is investable. Hopefully our panel can shed some light there. But as we close out the year and look ahead to 2023 and beyond, There are a few stories that have really captured the imagination of investors and myself that I'd love to get the group's thoughts on. In some ways, they're telling both about the bull market we've just experienced and how much the world has changed in just the past year. They show how we've transitioned from a market focused on growth at all costs and a fear of missing out to one where cash flow is king and investors demand that companies prove it. It is a much more comfortable environment for fundamental investors like ourselves. The first example is the high-profile fiasco at FTX, which was once one of the world's largest cryptocurrency exchanges, and it was recently valued at over $30 billion, only to spectacularly blow up and declare bankruptcy. On the surface, this seems to be a story about a larger-than-life, and it seems too good to be true, entrepreneur Sam Bankman-Fried, flying too close to the sun. But in many ways, this story is a microcosm for the excesses of this past cycle, one where a zero interest rate environment emboldened risk-taking, eschewed traditional financial valuation metrics, and curtailed due diligence. A suspension of disbelief accompanies each boom and bust cycle, and it often ends in the discovery of fraud, much like the way the dot-com crash unearthed Enron and WorldCom and the great financial crisis exposed Madoff. While fraud has not yet been proven with FTX, there are some strong indications. The list of firms who funded FTX is a who's who of venture capital firms that highlights the fast-paced deal environment that drew in even some of the most accomplished investors to questionable deals. The FTX saga underscores why we took a slow and cautious approach with crypto and reminds us of the need for regulation in the space, which we've talked about at length. It may also put an exclamation point on the end of the various bubbles inflated during an era of low rates. 
But more importantly, it's a reminder of the pressures that all investors feel to chase returns and the next big thing in a bull market. There's also what you might call the Twitter effect. The tech industry is watching to see just how lean Twitter can get as the layoffs mount following Elon Musk's $44 billion takeover. Meta and Amazon have already announced meaningful layoffs, while an activist investor is pressuring Alphabet to consider cost cuts as well. If Musk can cut Twitter's workforce by 75% and produce the same or better product, what could that mean for other tech platforms? Tech stocks make up a quarter of the U.S. stock market, but less than 4% of the workforce. So this story is less about the employment picture and more about when the end of the growth at all costs era will help us find a bottom for technology stocks, maybe based on improving cash flows and efficiency. And we seem to be getting closer. Both of these developments are connected to the macro theme of the past 18 months. Stubborn inflationary pressures that have led to quickly rising rates and a repricing of all assets. With bonds now offering the most attractive relative yields they have in decades, stocks are no longer the only game in town. One doesn't need to go far out on the risk curve for return. And a dollar today is once again worth far more than a dollar in five or 10 years. This has taken an especially harsh toll on the highest growth stocks, which have most of their income streams far off in the future, but also speculative assets with no cash flows like crypto. As the famous Warren Buffett quote goes, when the tide goes out, you see who's been swimming naked. The tide has gone out, and those companies that are over leveraged, burning cash, or unwilling to adapt to this new environment where cash flow is king, are struggling to survive and seeing their valuations slashed. This is one of the reasons we've emphasized balance between value and growth strategies in our portfolios for more than two years, and we're continuing to do so today. As far as we've come, there still could be further to go in this reset, and a new interest rate regime requires a different playbook. So here we are. We're heading into 2023 with a setup few could have predicted just a few years ago. Bonds are back. Bitcoin is bruised, if not busted. And the tech giants that could once do no wrong are amongst the worst performing stocks, and are cutting their workforces left and right. China, which was once set to overtake the U.S. as the world's largest economy, is facing growing political and economic pressures and being abandoned by many global investors. Old world energy stocks, once deemed uninvestable, are by far the best performing sector in the market this year, up over 60%. I'm excited to recap where we are, but let's look forward to the future with our panel today. So with that, let's get started. So Erica, maybe I can start with you. Since the end of the third quarter, the S&P 500 has risen by nearly 13%. As the market continues to whipsaw investors, we're kind of going up and down uh, 10%, it seems, every uh, few months. Can you set the stage for what's going on in global markets today? Maybe talk a bit about the earnings picture and then the most recent updates on the macro? Said we, we've talked a lot about this uh, over the course of the year. These are challenging times, and there's a lot to navigate right now. So global markets have experienced negative returns this year, but October and November have seen a nice bounce. Many equities are up double digits or more, and international equities have led the way. You've really seen this renewed equity risk on sentiment, but what is um, different than previous years is that this is very much a value-oriented market. So if you look at U.S. large caps alone, Value has led growth by more than 6% since the end of September, and on a year-to-date basis, it's, it's more than 20%. And as, as you mentioned, we've finally uh, reached a point where we're seeing positive performance for both equities and bonds. 
So the recent rally is is really driven by a couple of things, better than feared third quarter earnings, a better than expected October inflation print, and a slightly lower U.S. dollar. Uh, But the markets continue to be focused on three areas, inflation, the Fed, and earnings. And, you know, bear markets continue to be volatile. And the theme over the past two months, and you you, uh, mentioned this a little bit, is is this the beginning of the end? Meaning, are we at the end of 8% inflation, at the end of 75 basis point rate hikes? We just, we don't know. Uh, You know, over the past two months, the market seems to think so, just given the reaction to Fed Chairman Jerome Powell's most recent commentary that the pace of rate hikes will begin to moderate at the next meeting. And, you know, this has really been a glimmer of hope rally since September. It's amazing to think how fast uh, that most headlines moved from being centered around inflation to disinflation in such a short period of time. So recall that October headline CPI was 7.7% versus 8.2% in September. Uh, So volatility continues. Good news is bad news dynamic um, is uh, is prevalent today. You know, recently we had a better than expected employment report and the markets move lower as this will continue to put pressure on the Fed to raise rates. So another area that, um, Sid, we, we've talked about is uh, in addition to rate hikes, the Fed has doubled its balance sheet in two years, and now they're unwinding some of that. So we don't exactly know the extent uh, as to how far they're going to go in reducing their balance sheet, but this does impact the velocity of money. It can be a headwind for equity markets, so we're watching that very closely And I'm really looking forward to Eric's thoughts today on third quarter earnings, but we've seen a similar setup uh, to what we saw going into the June quarter. So low expectations, a good amount of negative earnings revisions heading into the prints, uh, and markets have responded favorably to this. So I think 2022 is, is really that year of valuation compression where we've seen steep declines in prices of companies. But next year, we're probably going to be looking at earnings compression across the board. That's uh, that's great. And maybe with so much focus on earnings, inflation, the Fed, uh, just like to note, we also just went through midterm elections here in the U.S. Um, how much did those results impact your investment views, if at all? Yeah, so I think importantly, the stock market is not the economy. So with regard to market performance during election election cycles is there's typically volatility leading up to and right after elections. And a lot of that stems from the markets simply do not like uncertainty. So, and it's also important to note that we're looking at returns over business cycles rather than election years or terms. However, public policy can impact certain sectors. So for instance, healthcare, when parts of the space are driven by legislators or energy, which relies a lot on the regulatory environment. So historically, markets have done fine under different parties. Uh, Divided governments actually tend to be good for markets. So specifically on the midterms, election results were not widely disputed, um, despite a lot of fears going in. Uh, And then, you know, I think one of the biggest areas are that Biden's legislative agenda, which includes the Inflation Reduction Act, is still on track. And it bodes well for spending on infrastructure, spending on renewables, uh, and the climate-focused agenda is is a go. Yeah, that's that's, um, good context. I've definitely, definitely also kind of found that 
other macro variables, inflation rates, economic growth have been much more the focus than the midterms. Uh, you know, I think we expected the impact would be muted. I think it has been relatively muted. I totally agree with your point on divided government. Um, you know, it just reduces legislative uh, uncertainty. Uh, your point on whether the elections would be um, accepted, I think, is a really interesting one. I actually had my eye a bit more on the elections in Brazil, where there were some heightened worries that former President uh, Bolsonaro wouldn't recognize the election results if he were to lose. Uh, luckily, uh, for all of those involved, he did and he moved on. Uh, but unfortunately, this is one of the things we're going to have to look out for more uh, is just the uh, the uncertainty around the validity of election results, uh, certainly more than than we would hope. Sid, what do you make of the FTX saga and the drama at Twitter? I mentioned some of the thoughts in the opener, but maybe digging in a bit on first FTX. Uh, the main thing I take away is just how little anyone knows what's really going on in crypto. Uh, who's trading what tokens, what the tokens are worth, are these tokens securities? How should firms like FTX be regulated? And maybe most importantly, what are the real world use cases for crypto beyond kind of trading sardines, uh, which is what a lot of the industry has been based on thus far. So I'm a believer there will be some future use cases for crypto and blockchain for trading and settlement of real financial assets, stocks, bonds, mortgages, uh, and maybe also in areas like gaming and social media and elsewhere. But as the tide goes out in crypto, it's clear the valuations were light years ahead of the use cases. Um, you know, many of the asset values on FTX's balance sheet were almost comical, you know, billions of value, uh, billions of dollars of, of value in tokens with no real use cases, and they effectively cornered the market on them. So a tiny percentage of the tokens were traded. They created an inflated value for the whole market cap. And and the trading of these tokens, you know, clearly was a, a bit of the Wild West for these offshore exchanges, so, you know, the operational concerns were one of the biggest roadblocks we had to doing much of anything in the space because the players simply didn't have institutional controls. They weren't regulated. The custody was a major issue. But, you know, the lack of ability to value many of these tokens and see the real world use cases really and, and the adoption was another big issue uh, outside of kind of betting on teams early in, in the venture space. So I'm hopeful this washout creates a more solid footing for the next phase of, of development. I mean, there's clearly a lot of people in uh, venture capital and in, in the tech world that, that believe we will see some real world use cases uh, that come out of this rather than you know making quick bucks and, and trading tokens. Um, the good news also, I think, is that these blowups have generally happened way outside of the traditional banking system. So uh, even though we've seen a lot of crypto exchanges go down, there's very little risk in our minds of of contagion into the traditional financial system. I mean, switching to Twitter, I'm fascinated by what's going on at Twitter. It's like watching a, a pretty extreme science experiment unfold before our eyes. So, you know, what would happen if you cut three quarters of a tech company's workforce and things didn't break and maybe they even got better and people were more motivated? You know, could it lead to radical efficiency and extreme motivation for people who stay? Could it teach a lesson to Silicon Valley um, or could it all spectacularly fail? Um, you know, regardless, it represents a movement of asking tougher questions of tech companies that have been operating as if they had, and they, in some cases, did have zero cost of capital. Uh, you know, there was a whole era of people issuing convertible bonds in last year with zero coupons, you know, just raising capital with no cost uh, unless stocks went up a lot for these tech companies. That, that era is over. 
And so uh, an accomplished investor we know well, Chris Hahn at TCI, recently sent an open letter to Alphabet, Google's parent company, and asked for what seemed to me like pretty reasonable requests. So stop growing expenses at twice the rate of, of revenues, start thinking about cash flows and margins, address your uh, aggressive compensation and headcount, control your big bets, um, and think about your shareholders. And they're starting to do that. Um, a similar letter was sent to, to Meta, where all of those issues have been even more extreme. So markets are slashing the valuations of these companies and are being forced to, to listen. Um, you know, you've got to kind of love how free markets are, are working. So Eric, a, a similar question for you. Uh, how do you see the crypto turmoil impacting the companies that we're owning? And then uh, do you agree with any of those points on, on uh, what Twitter might have as an impact on staffing for big tech or, or is all this just wishful thinking? Well, thanks, Sid, and it's a pleasure to join you and Erica for this ultimate CIO Perspectives episode of the year. If we just look at November when FTX was imploding, the price of Ethereum and Bitcoin both fell more than 20%, but the S&P 500 actually rose for the month. So that um, sort of gives an overview on on impact on, on public markets. I think that individual companies and investment firms um, can carry exposure to crypto in a number of different ways. Uh, but at this time, we've just not seen any material contagion occur outside of the crypto ecosystem. So we own Block, NVIDIA, and Alphabet, uh, all of which carry minor exposure to crypto, and all were up in November. So Block carries an investment of a little more than $100 million in Bitcoin on its balance sheet, with less than 3% of its gross profit associated with Bitcoin. NVIDIA's revenue associated with crypto mining has been quote-unquote nominal, as management has said in recent quarters. Now, Alphabet did mention on its third quarter earnings call that its ad spending slowdown in recent months was exacerbated by crypto weakness. But in truth, that's only a piece of the challenges associated with digital advertising today. So crypto simply hasn't been able to present as either a safe haven or an inflation-fighting tool for investors And at this time, it's just not obvious that the demise of FTX is going to lead to a deeper spillover for public equity markets. In terms of Twitter, it's really been fascinating to watch um, in the press the changes that have been made under the leadership of Elon Musk in such short order uh, in in the goals to try to establish a platform uh, that Mr. Musk uh, has really always wanted. And uh, it will be uh, particularly interesting to see once all of the folks that have left the company and those that may return, uh, what the outcome of that is from a social media perspective, from a, uh, a voice perspective, um, and how that plays into uh, politics, how that plays into investments, and then just the health of uh, the content on social media. So I do think there's there's a lot there. In terms of um, layoffs and, and sort of the health of um, employment as it relates to Twitter and perhaps some other companies that have on the margin either slowed down hiring or, um, uh, or reduced their uh, employee count in recent months, on the margin it does seem to be having an impact on – uh, on growth companies and their rate of growth. It's not a very um, meaningfully measurable 
figure at this time. However, it is something that we need to monitor, particularly for those companies that are still being valued at rich uh, levels where the, the slightest dip in growth rate could still be very meaningful to the valuation of those companies. Thanks, Eric. Uh, helpful context. And I guess maybe we can make a transition. Uh, I mentioned free markets earlier. Uh, perhaps that's a, a smooth transition to talking about China, where uh, the freeness of their markets have been uh, up for debate of late. Erica, I know you just did a deep dive in, in the wake of the political transition taking place after the party congress. Um, how are you feeling about the world's second largest economy? Thanks, Ed. We're having a lot of dialogue uh, on China. We're receiving a lot of questions from clients. We're speaking with managers and um, talking about this internally quite frequently. So in October, the Central Committee confirmed Xi Jinping's third five-year term. This announcement has led us to evaluate the risk-reward in investing in China. So maybe I'll just take a minute to outline a few of the risks and, and potential opportunities. So on the, on the risk side, what this means is likely a, a major consolidation of power uh, and a poor party of Xi loyalists. And it's probably going to be difficult to produce productivity growth over the next 12 months or, or even longer. China has also had a zero COVID policy uh, that's put great pressure on the economy. Uh, you know, Sid mentioned earlier the protests that we're, we're seeing, uh, which are quite rare um, over this, this, um, this policy, but also on growing government debt in the region. Uh, and there's geopolitical risks. There's risks with Taiwan, there's risks with the U.S., uh, and there's a lot of regulatory complexity associated so common prosperity initiatives could present a headwind to the profitability of private companies in select industries like consumer inter internet. Um, and you know, for a while now, we've been talking about a bloated property sector. And it's really important to know that small changes from China authorities can have outsized impacts on global markets. China is the largest importer of crude oil. Their manufacturing capacity impacts supply and prices in many other regions. So on the flip side, you know, there's, there's still a fair amount of potential opportunities, first being any reopening or loosening of restrictions from China's zero COVID policy could result in a bounce in equity assets. We've actually started to see some of that over the past couple of weeks on, on hopes that some of these restrictions might be, might be loosened. China is, is a leader in innovation and is critical to reaching a low-carbon global future. Um, and, you know, there's extreme bearish sentiment. Valuations are extremely depressed. Maybe hitting a little bit on the, the ESG perspective, governance presents a significant challenge uh, for both equities and, and fixed income. I mentioned earlier some of the complexities within the energy sector. China continues to use coal to generate electricity. Uh, and is also the largest emitter of uh, greenhouse gas, GHG emissions. Uh, so, uh, and it's really important to note that many raw materials used in solar are also sourced from, from, um, from a lot uh, of, of these regions uh, within Asia and within China. Um, China has committed to net zero by 2060, and we cannot globally reach net zero uh, without China. 
so um, they are in a very key position in the supply of green technology. Last year alone, Europe sourced most of its solar and wind technology from China. If you look at the 10 largest solar panel companies and man- manufacturers, most of them sit in China. And um, you know, roughly 80% of the components needed to manufacture a wind turbine are also produced in the we- region. So you know, the list goes on and on as far as uh, renewable innovation and, and technology. Uh, but there's, there's a lot of progress that, that needs to happen from a reporting standpoint for companies um, to think about ESG goals, environmental, social, and governance goals, as well as uh, reporting metrics. So, and and we're, we're not there yet. So in summary, we're maintaining allocations for clients that understand the risk level today uh, of investing in China, but we'd prefer to wait to get more clarity on Xi Jinping's priorities before adding or um, changing exposure within portfolios. Thanks, Erica, for that. Eric, what about for the many U.S. companies that have been deriving a, you know, a growing proportion of their sales, cash flow, just growth levels from China specifically and maybe emerging markets more broadly? How, how are we thinking about this exposure for portfolio companies? Yeah, Sid, there are, there are a lot of layers to that question and and. Our team has had a number of good debates on the topic of China and China exposure. Uh, I would say that we have our concerns with business models that are based in China right now from a regulatory perspective. And really, you know, whether Xi Jinping's recent consolidation of power could potentially influence corporate business decisions not directly aligned with shareholders. So that that's something. Uh, for those companies based in China that we are um, really thinking about long and hard. Beyond that, uh, Eric had mentioned Taiwan. Taiwan Semi is a really interesting holding. Uh, Taiwan accounts for about 90% of global share of leading-edge semi-chip manufacturing, with Taiwan Semi leading the way. It, um, it appears as though some important checks and balances are, in fact, in place that would prevent a Chinese invasion of Taiwan anytime soon. And the uh, executive chairman of Taiwan Semi recently said no one would win in a Chinese attack. And um, certainly, given everything that we've read and, and, and listened to over the course of the last few months, um, it feels like somewhat of a safer bet uh, to us at this time. Now, you had asked about U.S.-based companies. There's, there's clearly risk of deglobalization that could impair these U.S. consumer brands that carry meaningful exposure to the region. I think of Estee Lauder. I think of Starbucks as prime examples here. We need to continue to monitor regulation that may increase competitive threats for U.S.-based businesses that do sell into China. But we also need to think about the strategic importance of those products in relation to the relationship between China and the U.S. So prestige, beauty, and coffee are less likely uh, to hit Xi's radar than, say, electric vehicles might. In the near term, the country's zero-COVID policy has created something of a sawtooth reaction for stocks that are exposed to China, up, down, up, down. When manufacturing facilities shut down and stores close, as COVID case counts rise, it's led investors to worry about the impact on quarter, quarterly results. And then when uh, these cities open up again, the stocks seem to recover. Uh, responding to another um, part of Erica's commentary, 
we think it's impossible to really know the outcome of the recent citizen protests on eventual pandemic policy. But in the near term, the COVID outbreaks are a risk to fundamentals. I guess I'd conclude by saying that volatility does create opportunity for the longer term investor. And assuming these issues are limited to the near and intermediate term, bargain moments can form. It just gets harder, in our view, to make the case for businesses that we perceive to have uh, substantial regulatory risk. So, Sid, maybe uh, turning back to you, I talked a little bit about the bearish sentiment in China. Do you think sentiment has gotten carried away, and is China really cheap here? China certainly appears cheap. Uh, Valuations are close to all-time lows, trading at about 10 times earnings. That's about a 40% discount to the U.S. Sentiment is bearish. Investors are throwing in the towel uh, left and right. That's usually a great time to look at investing in a market. Eric, you mentioned Taiwan Semiconductor. It was interesting to see Berkshire Hathaway uh, just initiate a a position in in Taiwan Semi, and maybe that's a vote on on their confidence that the situation between China and Taiwan will not get worse. Really quickly on on the political side of things, there's a lot of concern right now about the protests and about the stability of the government. I think it's kind of hard for us to really imagine how upset you might be after three years of rolling lockdowns. And the government does have a lot in their power to to change that. And that could calm things down pretty significantly. And it could really be a positive reigniting force for, for the economy. So there's, I think, that that is more positive. And, and I always take with a grain of salt all of the kind of, you know, Western media views of what is going on with the reshuffling politically in China. So, you know, I kind of discount my ability to, to, to fully understand what's going on there. You know, I think we have to acknowledge though that the risks in China have increased the last few years. It's not just the in, internal politics, which is individuals determining the outcomes of whole industries and, and companies, uh, the geopolitics between the U.S. and, and Taiwan, the overlevered real estate sector, the, the demographics, but it's a really big economy. It's a deep market. It's hugely inefficient. So it's dominated by retail traders, you know, three times uh, the trading volume of, of retail traders, just fewer professionals uh, uh, that are you know, trying to find the real value, intrinsic value of companies. And there are some great investors that are on the ground there who've been able to outperform. So, uh, you know, it appears not only cheap, but it's also less correlated with the U.S. than most other markets. So, you know, to your point, uh, you know, Erica, we haven't been adding, and uh, you know, I think we've had a lot of debate around about that. But we've been sticking with our exposure, generally speaking, even if we've been tilting more of our exposure uh, elsewhere in Asia, outside of China. So, you know, a big reason that we're in Asia is for the long-term growth opportunity in the region and the potential uh, for strong earnings growth of the companies we're investing in over long periods of time. And the growth actually looks higher today outside of China, in places like India and Southeast Asia, and so. We're also thinking about, you know, Asia x China uh, as a piece of the puzzle. So with that big picture set up, why don't we dive into earnings and how companies are looking right now? I'm excited to bring Eric in on this. Eric, my biggest takeaway thus far is that the earnings picture has been better than feared. A lot of that's been due to stronger revenue growth, offsetting the margin pressures from rising wages and costs. But the estimates that we're seeing for the fourth quarter show that we may be seeing a slowdown in the top line and more bottom line pressures and actually seeing earnings for the first time decline. 
Do you agree with my first takeaways? And then how do you see earnings shaping up going forward? Yeah, Sid, it's um, it's been a really um, interesting year with all of the discussion and, and the concerns about the pending recession. Earnings growth is looking like it's going to be about 5% this year uh, versus 2021 uh, when you look at the S&P 500. And I think everything that you've said is very accurate. The, the first half of the year when the market sold off was all about multiple compression. Earnings estimates actually rose through the first half of the year. And this, both the second quarter and third quarter earnings seasons were more resilient than, than folks expected, me included, uh, despite very strong currency headwinds, a weak and lower-end consumer, and, and the ge- geopolitical uncertainty that we've um, already addressed it does appear, though, that the Fed's efforts to reduce inflation and money supply are, are finally having an impact on corporate earnings. As you said, we're fourth quarter numbers. We've already seen twice as many companies issue negative earnings guidance than positive, and there is a strong likelihood that uh, earnings growth will turn negative uh, in the fourth quarter. When you look at consensus expectations for the first half of 2023, there's the expectation of 1% to 2% growth versus the first half of 22, and then much, much higher growth as we move out into the second half of 23 and beyond. So for the full year, consensus is calling for roughly 6% earnings growth in 2023. This is where I suggest that we may differ from, from consensus. We've seen cracks in demand on the margin from companies that have reported their October and quarters, and we've attended a number of conferences in recent weeks. And um, whether it be industrials, uh, listening to retail earnings or software company results, it's just hard to picture consensus playing out, even if there is a soft landing in store for the U.S. economy. Now, in truth, no one knows exactly how significant a potential earnings recession would be in 2023. It's something that, Sid, you, Erica, and I, and others have have talked a lot about in-house. I'm not sure that companies are going to have great visibility when they provide their 2023 guidance during the fourth quarter earnings season. But while it appears as though the market is trading at 17 times forward earnings today, the likelihood is it's trading at a much higher multiple than that, as consensus estimates for 2023 likely need to come down a fair bit. And and I suspect that we'll start to see that occur with greater uh, frequency here over the coming months. Eric, thank you for your thoughts. Um, Yeah, I'd I'd imagine as we enter 2023, we'll start to get a clearer picture of uh, what the full year outlook will look like. Uh, On these podcasts, we always like to address the consumer, and we're now in the critical holiday season for for retailers. What is the state of the consumer? Yeah, Erica, the the U.S. consumer um, is hanging in there. It's so far looking okay. The the credit card debt is climbing for U.S. consumers at about 15% a year right now, and savings rates have have dropped down to extremely low levels, so we we should be aware of that. But the consumer is spending, at least those that are focused on the the middle to higher income bracket um, areas. The sustainability of that spend, I really think, is is what's in question and in part reflects my skepticism around 2023 numbers. So we've seen Target, Macy's, Nordstrom, and, and others report a slowdown in consumer spend in late October and into November. But to your point, in looking at holiday activity, online sales during the period between Thanksgiving and Cyber Monday rose mid-single digits. And 
Shopper visits to stores also rose in that same magnitude. The important National Retail Federation anticipates that total holiday sales for November and December combined will grow 6 to 8% this year. So, look, people are still buying gifts and treating themselves during the holiday season. So, Eric, maybe you could talk a little bit about the prospects for big tech companies and how they've changed. Maybe I'd throw in also uh, some of the, the mid-sized tech companies, but, you know, we've seen – uh, obviously, some of these cost-saving measures at the big tech companies, we've seen a bit of a slowdown in kind of one of the strongest areas, uh, the cloud and uh, cloud spending. We've even seen very recently uh, you know, cybersecurity companies, which have been kind of the, one of the last areas of real strength in, in tech, um, you know, projecting a slowdown in revenues and, and getting punished from a valuation standpoint. Are, are we in the midst of a, of a tech reckoning still uh, do you think there's there's still um, more negative fundamental news to come? Yeah, Sid, it's a it's a really important question for us to be considering, and you know, taking a step back, you know, we've recently lived through what I would call a golden era for mega cap stocks. We saw the big just continue to get bigger. The the five largest constituents of the Russell 1000 growth index accounted for 38 percent of the index weight at the end of last quarter, and that's up from 23% just five years ago. These technology-oriented companies, and and I'm referring to, in this case, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, and Tesla, experienced accelerated growth in fundamentals, which were driven by secular tailwinds that were just given a tremendous boost forward during the pandemic. I mean, think about it. Growth in e-commerce, digital advertising, enterprises migrating to the cloud, transition towards electric vehicles. They all experienced a big jump in recent years. And it was certainly driven by consumer behaviors during COVID, but also, in our view, by cheap money and meaningful stimulus. This year, as you mentioned, has been a really different story across the board. All of these stocks have underperformed the S&P 500 uh, through November. Interest rates have risen dramatically, and that's placed downward pressure on valuation multiples, as we've talked about, uh, particularly for high-growth companies. Travel and experiences have taken share from other forms of spend. High inflation has reduced consumer confidence. None of this has helped Amazon's e-commerce business nor Alphabet's digital advertising operations. Now, demand for Apple and Tesla products have appeared to remain strong through the recent uh, earnings results, but supply has become more challenging for each due to COVID restrictions in China for Apple. Uh, and then logistical issues impacting deliveries for Tesla. You know, even the data center businesses that we just mentioned, Amazon, Microsoft, and Alphabet, have seen some deterioration in growth rates as enterprise clients have delayed purchasing decisions, given the current macro uncertainty. Lastly, it's it's the strong dollar um, that's just been a very significant headwind for these global businesses, and it has hurt their top and bottom lines this year. Now, when you take that um, that all of that information into account, I, I do suspect that investors piled into these names as seemingly safe haven stocks in recent years, and it's been driven by their tremendous scale and innovation. And you know, you mentioned perhaps some of the um, mid-cap company cybersecurity. These are still businesses that are viewed as secularly advantaged, given the trends of the consumer, the trends of the enterprise. Um, it's important to note that those advantages largely remain intact. The challenge in our mind is determining what is the proper growth rate and profitability of these businesses 
in a, a quote unquote more normalized macro environment. I think that's what's really hard to solve for and something that we're spending time on um, every day. Valuations based on free cash flow yield, particularly for Microsoft and Alphabet today, appear to be discounting a very conservative growth rate going forward. The last comment I'll make is one that you mentioned up front, which it talks about free cash flow, or really a lack thereof for some really big, important companies so far this year. So I'll mention Meta. Meta's free cash flow expectations for 2022 and 2023 were expected to be $32 billion and $40 billion respectively at the beginning of this year. That was, that was the expectation. Today, these figures are down to $14 billion and $10 billion. So it's just been a dramatic decline based on um, increased spending and, and perhaps um, lower profitability than, than initially anticipated. Disney's experienced the same fate. And like Med is also attempting to adapt to a new business model with material free cash flow deterioration as the outcome. So in an environment of rising rates and macro uncertainty, it's cash flow yield and balance sheet health that are the backstops to further price declines in our view. Both companies and Disney's under new management now, it's actually old management that's come back, needs to solve for this challenge uh, for shareholders to once again be rewarded. And again, I, I just want to make it clear, we're not talking about these businesses being challenged from a, from, from a competitive perspective as much as them figuring out how they can generate free cash flow. You have Meta with about 4 billion monthly users of their apps. You've got Disney with a content library that's very likely never going to be matched. But they've got to find a way to transition those positives into free cash flow if they're going to get valued like great companies. Sid, we just increased our allocation to small caps uh, on the U.S. side. Why the shift and what's interesting in small cap? I'll probably leave the companies to our uh, investment team, but just from a bigger picture level, what's interesting about small caps right now in particular is that they look cheap. And so if you look at various uh, valuation metrics, large caps versus small caps, large caps are kind of 20 to 30% above their historical valuation premium. You know, in, in, in our views, that, that looks relatively cheap. And, and the biggest change we made recently was you know, balancing out growth and value. So actually adding back to the growth uh, companies in the small cap realm that that we had really reduced our exposure to uh, during the, the run-up uh, in 2021. So kind of bringing that balance back in and saying, geez, these small cap growth companies, again, look uh, like they're they're trading at, at, at pretty reasonable valuations. Um, bigger picture, uh, we've uh, historically had just a, a structurally higher weight to small caps versus, say, you know, the market indices that people might invest in, certainly the S&P 500, but even a broader market index. And, and that's because small cap is less efficient as an asset class or fewer analysts covering these companies. Uh, typically, small cap over long periods of time tends to uh, outperform. These are smaller companies that can have faster growth. And there's also just, uh, uh, as we talked about, kind of a, a, a a premium, both a, a valuation premium that companies will get as they go from small to large. Uh, and there's also sometimes kind of a liquidity premium element that, that we can capture as small cap companies become larger. So we like small caps generally, but today in particular, uh, we think the valuations uh, are compelling us to, to modestly increase our exposure there. 
So, Sid and Erica, turning the tables to, to both of you, we've addressed the fact that there are a lot of moving parts and complexity in global markets right now. What are we doing from an asset allocation standpoint? So in, in thinking about 2023, it's probably going to be another year of recalibration and adjustments. The investment environment will most likely continue to focus on higher inflation, higher rates, and currency volatility. The monetary fire hose is drying up. So central banks are now leading us into slower growth, which has been quite different than the life preserver approach used for many years. We're probably going to still be dealing with supply side and supply chain issues. Supply is dictating a lot right now. And then keep in mind, we're reversing a decade of low cost of capital, and there's a global resetting of growth expectations uh, that uh, Eric talked about earlier. So in thinking about building asset allocation, the appetite for future growth is probably going to be much different than we've seen for the past couple of decades. Uh, And Eric, you touched on this. There's going to be a focus on cash generative assets. Probably company budgets for future growth will change, uh, you know, and there's going to be a microscope on expenses. We'd probably anticipate some pretty large shifts in, in CapEx or capital expenditures. Technology, that industry seems to be moderating CapEx. But some industries like energy, Eric, that, that you talked about, they're increasing CapEx or changing the structure of their maintenance CapEx. So heading into next year, we remain defensive and diversified as we think that there's still a fairly wide range of potential outcomes. We continue to have a balance between growth and value equities uh, with with a leaning more towards um, value uh, a little bit. We're maintaining our, our short duration treasuries given the attractiveness of, of that you know, risk-free return right now. Uh, we've emphasized treasuries given recessionary risk that you know, the fixed income allocation uh, plays its role in, in such an in environment. So these, the, the, our treasury allocation ensures um, that, you know, we have that stability assets within a client portfolio. And then recently, we, we started to add back a little bit on the duration side to, to core fixed income. Sid mentioned this earlier, the yield environment has dramatically changed across the fixed income landscape. And in turn, that changes the return expectations going forward. And we continue to like diversifiers such as uh, such as infrastructure. Lastly, we, we would hope that the investment backdrop starts to stabilize, uh, if not improve, as we enter the second half of, of next year. If that uh, does happen and we start to see signs of improvement, we'd be looking to unwind some of the defensiveness that we've we've had in portfolios since uh, since late 2020. Uh, we've done a little bit of this recently. Sid just talked about adding to small caps, but you know we'd we'd be looking to unwind some of that defensiveness uh, a little bit further. Sid, maybe to you. I think you covered a lot of it. I mean, the big takeaways for me are, you know, building back up our bond portfolios. We'd cut them down to kind of really low levels over the last few years. And now we have the highest real interest rates in, in 15 years. And, you know, four and a half percent short term, you know, uh, T-bill uh, looks pretty good uh, in this kind of environment. Um, even if you think inflation is going to be, you know, a bit more elevated markets, say maybe two and a half percent. 
3% over the next year or two. I hope that's right. But regardless, 4.5% for kind of risk-free return looks, looks pretty good. Increasing small cap you hit on. I mean, a couple of other areas, you know, one is distressed investments. I think we haven't added anything explicitly kind of into uh, our our uh, portfolios for everyone yet. But there's an interesting dynamic right now with the economy slowing, but also where zero interest rates led to a lot of bonds being issued with exceedingly low coupons. And so right now we have, you know, high yield bonds that are trading at 60, 70 cents on the dollar. And so the downside in a default scenario is lower than it typically would be. Um, so that is an interesting kind of asymmetry. And, and we expect that, you know, there just will be more defaults and they may be more broad based across a, a number of different sectors so that we may be able to get that, you know, often sought after, you know, kind of good company with a bad balance sheet that is taken through a restructuring. While pain is still being felt in private markets right now, and I think some prices still haven't yet reflected the reality of higher interest rates and a lower valuation world, eventually this will set us up for some of the better deals we've seen in quite a while for our managers. So Eric, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing all the insights, uh, company specific and otherwise. When we turn the page to 2022, I wanted to ask you, ask the group, uh, what are some of the investment themes uh, that you consider uh, amongst the most important heading into the new year and looking out many years? Well, Sid, I'll, I'll try to provide a, a high-level perspective um, on this uh, important question. I think that central banks, corporations, and investors are all still sorting out what the new normal is going to look like in terms of levels of inflation and unemployment, in terms of consumer and enterprise behavior, and in terms of valuation multiples. Now, this assumes that there's one point in time from which to conclude that we've reached a new normal, and unfortunately, that's never the case. However, it does appear as though we're entering a period of slower earnings growth or even decline based largely on central bank efforts to tame inflation. Valuation multiples have generally been de-risked from the frothy levels we've seen over the last couple of years, suggesting the path forward for equities is through fundamentals. The question is, which companies will be able to generate strong earnings and cash flow in the face of greater uncertainty surrounding the health of the consumer and the enterprise? That's really what we need to uh, boil things down to in our view. And personally, I suspect that quality will once again help to differentiate performance among stocks as the dust settles and really how the world has changed post-COVID and as the era of easy money comes to a close. Earlier, I alluded to the idea that market volatility driven by near-term data points can create opportunity for investors with a somewhat longer time horizon. If we are directionally accurate regarding bottom-up company fundamentals over the next few years, we will likely find some bargain moments to add to positions in the coming months, and that's the optimistic tone that I would want to conclude my thoughts on. I'd turn it over to Erica and, uh, and ask her the same question. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, I, I'll talk about two themes that are on my mind, one that we've touched on a bit today. So income as a growing part of total returns. So the silver lining uh, in higher rates is that it means higher income yields. And Sid, I, you mentioned earlier that stocks are no longer the only game in town. And, and I think that's right. The 70-30 portfolio should start to be attractive once again. 
And then the second theme, which we talked about on a few of these discussions, has been the changing energy paradigm that will impact many industries and regions. Climate risk is an investment risk, and we'll probably see a ramp up of reporting by companies on greenhouse gas emissions. But we're also probably going to start to hear more about uh, infrastructure spending. Green CapEx uh, will probably be a focus of many industries next year. Um, And when you look at energy transition, energy independence, they all offer investment opportunities. But this is complex. It's going to take time. uh, And it's likely going to come not only from energy companies that supply power and fuels, but it's also going to come from companies that use these resources. Uh, So I think you're going to hear a lot more about um, the shift towards a renewable future next year, uh, particularly on the allocation of of budgets, expenses, and and capital expenditures. I think it's a really good point on the balancing of of budgets. That was one of the things I was going to talk a little bit about um, and just how you know, the crowding out of certain areas in public spending, you know, could impact tax rates in the future or could impact economic growth and, and returns. That's something we're still kind of sorting through. And it's really hard to to pinpoint what the, the outcomes will be. And it'll be dependent on who's in office and, and so on. But, you know, for me, a couple of the longer term themes that I think we've talked about in the past and maybe one that we haven't as much, but, you know, healthcare and biotech, I think is a big theme. The data is pretty clear that as societies become wealthier, they spend more and more money on healthcare. That's for extension of life. That's for improvement of the quality of life. As we've seen standards of living and GDP per capita increase at countries all over the world in a really dramatic fashion over the last you know, 20, 30 years, even more so outside the US, I think spending on healthcare is going to increase. And we've seen some pretty impressive advancements in targeted therapeutics and personalized medicine, this intersection of big data and healthcare. And it's just a really inefficient space uh, for investing both public and private because of the knowledge gap for investors who aren't um, specialized in in this arena. So we continue to invest more and more research time and actual dollars in in that space. You know, I think uh, this the theme of being in a more multipolar world, um, the the idea of onshoring of production, you know, kind of peak globalization, maybe not deglobalization and perhaps more entrenched inflation and more volatile and higher interest rates. Uh, you touched on that a bit, but you know we're thinking through that a lot. What does it mean, I think, from a, an asset allocation standpoint that also talks about our interest in kind of being more balanced between growth and value, building back up our, our core fixed income and having some inflation protection in portfolios. The, the last piece we, we certainly haven't worked through, but it's definitely been on my mind, uh, is in the realm of artificial intelligence. I'm not sure if any of you have checked out this new text-based system from OpenAI called ChatGPT, but it's pretty incredible. You can ask it complex questions, and it can respond and give you a draft of legal documents or write a play in the style of a particular author or answer complex scientific questions. Uh, you could see how this could disrupt many different areas over the next 10 years, and it could increase labor productivity. It could change dynamics in the labor market. You know, this is an area, AI and, and ML, which is an area of focus not just for our venture capital allocations, where it is a pretty big focus, but also 
uh, some of the public tech companies that are core positions in our portfolios today. I mean, Microsoft is the lead investor in OpenAI. I think they put a billion dollars in the company in 2019. So, you know, those are some really exciting areas where when we think about the next 10 years, it's where are we going to spend our, our precious time uh, from a research perspective and, and eventually putting uh, more and more dollars to work. And with that, we wanted to thank everyone for listening today and listening to all of our podcasts this year. And we'd love to wish you the best, happy uh, and healthy holiday season. Please join us again when we resume in January. And thank you, Erica, as always. And a special thanks to Eric for all of your insights today. 